Hello, everybody. Turn this up in my headphones, Charles. Turning it up. Hello, 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 everybody, one and all. Welcome back to yet another very exciting episode of the Friends mm. Talking Fantasy Podcast. My name is Charles, and with me today is my lifelong friend and co-host, Dylan. I'm ready to talk some fantasy with my friend, Charles. I am ready to talk some fantasy with my friend as well, Dylan, and not just any fantasy today, because today is a very special day over here on the Fred's Talking Fantasy Podcast, because we get to talk about Joe Abercrombie yet again, Mm. our buddy Reed of the series continues to move we are moving quickly we're wrapping up sharp ends today the short story collection from the first law universe we are going to be talking about the last few holdouts there before we get into the age of madness yeah charles and i just can't wait to (laughs) talk some more sharp ends with you i I hope folks have listened to that first part if they want to hear the first half or so of the short stories in this awesome Joe Abercrombie, not, I, I don't know if I should call it a novel, collection of short stories. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we'll be we'll be getting into the rest of this. So I'll give my spoiler warning here, Let's which hear is, it. well, we're going to be talking about Sharp Ends, which was published in between uh, Red Country and A Little Hatred. So that's between the Joe Abercrombie standalones and the Age of Madness, which we'll be covering soon. So we're not going to hold back on spoilers for anything that came before Sharp Ends, which means uh, the original First Law trilogy. It means Best Served Cold. Uh, it means the heroes, and it means Red Country are all fair game here. But we won't be getting into anything from Age of Madness, so you're safe here if you haven't read that one yet. But if you don't want any of those previous books spoiled for you, now is a good time to turn this down in your headphones and go check out those awesome Joe Abercrombie novels you haven't yet. Well said, Dylan. We highly recommend them. Highly recommend reading Sharp Ends as well, but not until after Mm -hmm. you read all the others that come before it in publication order, in my opinion. But uh, thank you for listening and go check those out. And for now, guys, if you want to start, this is the part two of our Sharp Ends discussion. So we are picking up halfway through the book, a little bit further than halfway, with our short story that is honestly... If not my favorite, it's definitely in the top three for this book, uh, the best short story in the collection, and that's Yesterday Near a Village Called Barden. And the main POVs here, we have Tinder, we have a union officer or two, and we have Gorst. Gorst Returns, who is such a great point of view. So I'll read the quick synopsis here. Royal Observer Bremer Dan Gorst reports to the king on another ugly little skirmish as summer dies in the north. So in this year, this is an interesting one because it's all about, again, like the cost of war, collateral damage of war, and also this theme that we've talked about, Dylan, multiple times with Joe Abercrombie's work, mm. which is this idea of doing these little acts of good when you can. And that's how this short story kind of wraps up. And I really enjoyed that about this series, this book, story in particular yeah so we're dealing with tinder who is pretty much trying to just mind his own business and the union are coming in and ruining his crop and uh, he's a family man and just kind of seeing the tragedy of being an innocent bystander in a war Uh, trying to protect the small little, I guess, uh, I don't want to say riches, but like the small little wealth he's been able to establish for himself. Yeah, uh, and it's interesting because in Abercrombie fashion, he's like kind of resigned to his fate. You know, he's not like angry. 
He's not plotting revenge. He's not terrified. He's just like, this is what war gets you. More farms just trampled for no reason because his army has to march to fight in the north. And it's a really interesting right. perspective. And it's a very Abercrombian point of view perspective on war and just about the self-perceived importance of government and armies and things like that. So it's really interesting to see that kind of juxtaposed with Tinder's, Tinder's observations about how they're just trampling his crops and all the sheer waste of it and the lack of productivity that war has produced. You know, that's kind of the parallel. Well said, Charles. Yeah, so Tinder has to, well, it feels as though he has to give away some milk to Gorst. <laughs> Gorst because stopping in and he looks like a, a murderer, which as we learn, he essentially is. Yes. Uh, and he's just trying to get some... <laughs> He's just trying to get this guy away from him and get through this with minimal damage. Yeah. And it is really interesting because uh, I don't know if, Charles, you want to take this more uh, piecemeal and go through the battle scenes and things like that. But it is interesting to see how Gorst is someone who's capable of of great evil in mm. some ways uh, and a lot of really bad things is also like he's he basically just loves murder for murder's sake and mm-hmm. uh, he loves blood, to fight he loves fighting way. killing yeah. yeah like he knows it's bad but and he grapples with the morality of whether or not it makes him a murderer that he's trying to kill people in mm-hmm. the middle of a war but that being said he has this this bloodlust and he also has this part of him that wants to do good and right. actually helps out Tinder all in all by the end of this. Yeah, and it it comes back to the plot lines that we know from the heroes with Gorse, where it's the same thing, this mm-hmm. idea of like, what makes a hero? And yes, we like to call Gorse bloodthirsty and he loves to kill people, but he only really ever does it in the contents of a battle it makes him a very effective soldier and it actually wins him all kinds of awards and honors and accolades and even fame amongst other soldiers. But the people that have called him out throughout his career are, those make some super interesting plot points and it's very Abercrombian of like, oh, you're a hero to these people, but when you look at it objectively, you just love to kill and murder. And that's Gorse, but at least Gorse knows that and... What's interesting about this short story is it revisits that, this idea of like he's very effective in combat, but then it it adds this element, right? Because there's a Union officer who discovers the Northern ambush when he goes to relieve himself in the woods, right? And then they end up engaging the Northmen and Gorst is, may there's this thing he may have killed one of his own officers, I don't know if it's almost ex- definitely. I think he almost it's definitely not explicitly does. said, but it's yeah. like just the heavily way it's implied. Set up. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's heavily implied that Gorse killed one of his own officers just in the crossfire, like not intentionally, but it's just like he's swinging his sword around. He doesn't care who's around him, and he's a very efficient killing machine. So Gorse knows that about himself, and he, like you said, Dylan, he is grappling with it. So it's that fine balance between what makes a like, are you a good soldier or are you like a horrible person? Are you a murderer? And how do we cope with that? And how do we like help ourselves sleep at night? And I think part of that for Gorst is apologizing to Tinder and giving him a silver mark. And that's like, it's such a great way to end the story of like this small kindness that he can do after so much waste and so much violence. Well said, Charles. Yeah, we... I mean, we're very used to, at this point, Abercrombie creating these extremely complex characters with gray morality, and it's it's cool to see Gorst fleshed out even more here, going from, mm. uh, I've got the part where he uh, he kills its Kearns, uh, and it basically jumps. It's a, it's a great use of point of view, too. Which yeah, is, he does that uh, heroes-like point of view thing where he's killing characters and moving them around and using POV to uh, like really to show us an outside perspective of Gorst, but also it's the character dies. It's a really interesting just use of POV that Abercrombie loves to do 
Exactly, Charles. And it's a guy who idolized Gorse too, which just doubles down on, because they had an interaction earlier. And he's like, oh, wow, Gorse, he's this hero. And then uh, there's this moment where there's three Northmen coming at this guy, Kearns. Says three more Northmen were jumping through the crops towards Gorse now, and Kearns hurried up to his side, raising his sword. So it's actually Kearns coming to try to help Gorst. Mm. And then he says, Colonel Gorst, it says he saw a flash of movement at the corner of his eye, jerked his head away on an instinct, and there's an M dash, and then it switches point of views and just says, Gorst felt his long steel crunch into something at the very end of his swing, twisting the grip in his fist as the Northman before him toppled back, blood squirting from his neatly slit throat. But he had no time to think on it. I have other business, it says in italics, like his internal monologue. Yeah, he, and he so just he moves on that, that quickly. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that, but the, he doesn't even give it a second thought in that moment. Right. And then this is a guy who goes out of his way later to give more, it's, he gives him coin, right? He gives him more a silver coin mark. Than he gives a silver tinder. mark. Yeah. Yeah, he gives Tinder yeah. a silver mark, which was more than the yield of the crops ever would have been. So that was a huge thing. And Gorst also, remember, he gave the paper to that union officer to write back to his wife or fiance or whatever yeah. that was. So, um, like, he has these small acts of kindness within him, but uh, it's just interesting to see how he grapples with that juxtaposed against his very efficient killing. So I just, I, this story really reached out to me because it has one, it has like a great theme and it touches on one of the more subtle but prevalent themes in Abercrombie's work where it's like, look, life is crap and you just got to do the goods that you can like to, to get by. And this is a beautiful example of that. And it's just a really great, like small encapsulation of Abercrombie's cynical humor and his hopefulness combined together yeah that makes sense charles and i thinking of it from a tinder's perspective since the story starts and ends with tinder we can say it's probably more tinder story than anyone yeah and it's in that lens it almost becomes a statement on the almost absurdity of yes. of war in some ways in the middle of this you see innocent people getting killed you see moments that just are completely ludicrous playing out your life's work but, getting trampled on for almost no reason as an afterthought <laughs> right but then tinder comes out of all of this mayhem better than when he started because yeah. of some random act of kindness so in a weird way, it's like, well, things are definitely overall worse, but it, war is so absurd and strange that this one guy benefits for just a random reason that Gorst was feeling, whatever, guilty or something. And yeah, it says that the the silver he gives him is, uh, <laughs> and Gorst says it's for the, the milk. And... <laughs> It says, it's a hundred times what the cup of milk had been worth, a thousand times, enough to replace all Tinder's lost chickens and maybe even some of his lost crops into the bargain. Uh, so, I mean, uh, I guess not necessarily better, but he comes out okay because of this random act of kindness. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, just a very interesting message that's sent and a good treatise on the cruelty of war but also the randomness and absurdity of it told through abercrombie's cynical humor and like you said through absurdity but honesty kind of at the same time so it's a great story and i think it's time now to move on because we have four more short stories to get through the next one is three's a crowd and this is a long one this is another chev pov I'll read the synopsis really quickly. It's a foolish man who steals from the best thief in Styria. And when Harold the Finger steals her lover, it's time for Chev to stop running and start fighting. For those who work in the shadows, though, few things are ever quite as they seem. 
And what's interesting to me about this story is it it's set seven years after the events of Best Served Cold, and Monza is now an all is now like it, it's interesting to see Mons Marcato like ruling. I believe yeah. this is the one where she crowns her son Joppo, uh, the king of all Styria. So this is like you know, an interesting thing to witness, and that to me was what stuck out the most in terms of continuity in the first law universe. It's like, oh, it's Monza, and that kid that she's you know she ended the last story pregnant, which has some very interesting implications. And now it's got me thinking as we start. Age of Madness, like, oh, maybe Monza and Japo, you know, maybe we'll see these characters in the future. I don't know. I haven't read too far into Age of Madness, so I can't say for certain. Dylan's read it all, so he can't comment. But yeah, to me, it's just interesting how we're getting this little piece of story development in the First Law universe. And this is a pretty juicy piece, too. It is a juicy piece. It is cool seeing... Monza and the setup there. This is a big reason why I people sometimes ask if they can read sharp ends before getting into the standalones. And this is basically the reason most of all that I say, please do not do that because you'll see Monza Mercato ruling Styria. And yeah, it is cool seeing the world moving forward where this book, sharp ends almost exclusively goes in chronological order except i think it only made a monster so jump yeah made a masters goes way or, back but made yeah a monster yeah yeah it's so that being said you're seeing the world finally moving forward beyond things that we've really seen expressed to us in the standalones and that's mm-hmm. cool and you also get to see chev who's this character that i i really love getting wrapped up with some of our old favorite characters here and she's lived a very interesting life now she's getting involved with people like mercato and vitari and yeah to see her pop back up (laughs) yeah it fleshes the whole thing out even more and this is just a this is one of my favorite stories i know it's a long one but it's cool seeing how Chev and Javra have sort of gone their separate ways. And Chev is really trying to pursue love with Karkov <laughs> with yeah. uh, mixed results. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know. I think this one's pretty much got everything. It's got it, uh, advancing the plot of the first law overall. And mm-hmm. it, it's got intrigue. It's got action. It's got friendship. It's got love. It's got betrayal. Yep. I think that it's got twists, Abercrombie turns, twists. He packs so much into this one. And it's got humor, of course. So I, I absolutely love this one. Yeah. I mean, we can go through some of the plot points here. The biggest things is another thing they said is like, oh, Monza outmaneuvered the union both politically and militarily stripping away their allies one by one and then defeating them three times in the field so manza's kicking ass on the side which is good to see but then she crowns joppo the king of austeria and then we cut to chev who after working for shiloh vitari and manza gets a document by this individual named crandall oh crandall's father harold we remember crandall yeah uh um so it's harold the finger yeah, Harold's basically promising not to seek further revenge on the death of his son, and yet Chev finds that her flat has been trashed and her lover Karkov has gone missing. So it's like, hmm, what good did that do me? So Chev enlists the help of Yavre again, and the two of them uh, apparently had a falling out. So like, there's all this stuff that kind of happened uh between the last chef pov and this one where they had falling out and and i guess they're like trying to get the band back together and uh they managed to fight their way to karkov only to find her in good shape which was the interesting twist right yeah that she basically had been friends with harold and had uh uh Horold, i mean and had been a part of orchestrating this whole thing mm-hmm. where <laughs> she faked her own kidnapping because she knew that Chev would get Javra and pursue 
her and try to save her. Mm-hmm. And after everything that Chev has been putting into her relationship with Karkov, she ends up just a pawn in the scheme, which is to get Javra uh, um, basically captured. And it's, uh, yeah, it's really interesting from Abercrombie on uh, it in a lot of ways it feels very classic Abercrombie in terms of the the twist at the end and that you go on this this quest almost to save someone and then they actually had kidnapped themselves or <laughs> orchestrated their own kidnapping but there's some freaking dimes of wisdom in in this Charles that oh, yeah? I really like yeah there's one of my favorite quotes, even though it doesn't turn out super well for uh, Chev about trust. Yeah. I like. And I can read that one. If, yeah, if let's hear cool. it. I'm always down to hear Abercrombie quotes. Like all these short stories yeah. are just full of of gems here. Um, so I'm curious to see which yeah. ones you've, you've cherry picked for us. So this one I like. If you want to be a fine new person with a fine new life, you've got to put the person you were behind you like a snake sheds its skin. You've got to stop picking through your hoard of hurts and grievances like a miser through his coins. Set them down and allow yourself to go free. You've got to forgive and you've got to trust, not because anyone else deserves it, but because you do. Which I think is just a really interesting idea about trust. It's I don't know what it says that Chev... Chev trusts the wrong person with Karkov, but uh, um, she eventually learns to trust the right person in Javra, who's always been there for her and always stuck by her side. So I've thought that that quote is just, it's interesting because you don't usually think of trust as being something you do for yourself. You think of it as something that you like give someone else, but it's kind of this idea of whether it's love or friendship which uh, for she tried love with Karkov and didn't really work, but now she's trying friendship with Javra uh, again, and hopefully that does work. You get this, uh, yeah, this kind of like really interesting insight into the idea of doing it uh, for you because you deserve love or you deserve friendship. And, uh, you know, Abercrombie gets a lot of credit for his humor, for his dark, stuff or his um amazing psychological depictions of characters but i think sometimes we sleep on his like wisdom with his quotes that's well said dylan and that's a great quote and it's like you said the the idea of trusting someone else like for your own benefit of like hey like i believe in myself i'm a person worthy of trusting others you know it's an interesting way to perceive trust and it's true in a way and as much as Abercrombie loves to take cynical approaches to things and point out absurdities and things he also touches on some really noble truths sometimes and I think Mm. the idea of finding self-worth through trusting others is a really interesting theme. And whether that other person ends up being worthy of your trust or not is a totally different conversation. But I do think (laughs) it's like you said, Dylan, ultimately she does find like a great relationship, maybe not romantic, but at least a friend, a very strong friendship, a supporting person in her life in, in Yavre. So like that, to me, is ultimately still a hopeful message. I don't think he was being particularly scathing when he said that, because sometimes he does like to have characters have revelations that are in actuality kind of misguided, but I don't think that's the case this time. I I think this time Abercrombie's being very genuine. Yeah. He has her kind of repeat it. It happened, it comes up twice, Mm -hmm. and it comes up again at the end, and I think the way I read it was the second time she was getting ready to trust Karkov again, but then it had just been too much when she stumbles on this letter um, that kind of fleshes out all the details of it. And then I think she transfers that more to Javra. So I do, I read it as a hopeful message as well. And I think it's part of Abercrombie's evolution as an author that he's moved away from these straightforward, grim, dark ways of, 
of viewing humanity and things like trust. Right. It's like Grimdark 2.0 where it's still grim. Like she gets betrayed by her girlfriend, but uh, she still walks away hopeful and confident and able to forge new meaningful relationships based off of what happened with her betrayal. So like it doesn't shake her resolve. So while it's still being very grim and very dark and it twisty and turny and, and, and all that. And like you said, this idea of the captive, planning their own kidnapping to betray their partner to settle a debt you know it's it 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 is very grim dark for sure but then this ending on a hopeful note and this like self-discovery portion of it this wrestling with your own identity and am i a good person which happened in the last story with gorst happening in this story with chef very abercrombie and like this is like later Abercrombie, like a, a little bit more of his progressive stuff, if you will, that he's like been working through these themes and he's come back around to like, what, how do we process this absurdity that is war and is betrayal and and, and walk away with something meaningful. And I, I think these explorations, both in the last story and this one, make these two some of the more interesting stories of all in this collection. Agreed. Yeah. And the last bit I'll, I'll note from this one that mm-hmm. I really like is this Chev has this realization. She believes that Karkov, who Chev has always wanted to know more about, wanted to get deeper into like a genuine relationship with where they tell each other stuff about their past and all this kind of stuff. Chev uh, <laughs> comes to this realization where she is like, Oh, there's actually nothing underneath Karkov's mask. Karkov is just a liar and uh, like a manipulator and all these kind of things. Mm. And it's interesting because it's juxtaposed against what you get not long after that in the... I I think it's, yeah, tough tough times all over where you actually get into Karkov's perspective. And uh, we'll get into that later, but we got another great short story tease. In yeah, before we jump over yeah. to that short story that's sandwiched between the two, I'll only say the last thing is the whole thing was a setup planned by Javra's mother uh, to give Javra the choice to either return with her to Thond or to retrieve an artifact. And again, this mm. this theme of this artifact kind of prevails through all these stories as well it's very tarantino like pulp fiction where we never find out what this artifact is and there's not too much people aren't really speculating too much on what this artifact could be but it just fascinates me i feel like i should at least have a suspicion what of what it is but i think the whole point is you you're not supposed to know and it was it's just something that's like it's the artifact it is what it is so the fact that that exists and we'll have to remember that as we go into uh, later stories. But yeah, I'm just fascinated by this artifact that keeps popping up. Yeah, so, it's, I do think it's very Tarantino, as like you're saying. <laughs> it's the, it's the with suitcase the, with the, just the glow, yeah. the golden glow coming out of it. Um, exactly. <laughs> so Secondary to any... Or oh, yeah. Not yeah. Even, yeah. Uh, there's a... There's a word for it, I think, like a writer's term for it. I think it's MacGuffin, mm. which is, yeah, uh, as you... Abercrombie is like a TV guy originally. He was like a screenplay yeah. editor or something like that. So okay. he does so, come from the movies. From Wikipedia, in fiction, a MacGuffin is an object, device, or event that is necessary to the plot and the motivation of the characters, but insignificant, unimportant, or irrelevant in itself. So, from a writing perspective. Yeah, and just to, like, yeah. to show what it is would only be distracting. So, to, like, yeah. hide it only builds up its mythology, its mythos, and and doesn't detract from the story. So, yeah, it's, it's good. So... Just something yeah. that just want to mention that that continues to come up and will again play an important role in that tough times all over story that we're talking about. But before we get there, we cannot skip Freedom, the next short mm. story. And this one is incredible. I mean, Dylan, you said for the last short story, like people shouldn't read this one before the short stories. I would say this one, like to read this 
before reading the heroes, it would make no sense. I mean, you would read it and be like, "You mean Red Country?" Yeah, Red Country, right, right. You would read this and be like, "Okay, that's like a weird thing to put in here." But it takes a whole nother meaning after reading Red Country because we know again. So to remind people about the short story freedom, this main POV is Swarbrick, which if for all you audiobook people out there, was narrated by Joe Abercrombie himself. Right. And then Nicomo Casca makes a little appearance at the end. And the brief description is being an absolutely true account of the liberation of the town of Averstock from the grip of the incorrigible rebel menace by the famous Nicomo Casca. And we all know by absolutely true account, we mean absolutely baloney. I can, I was, I, had, I got such a kick out of, I was listening to the audiobook, so I got such a kick out of Abercrombie just committing to this account of the liberation of Averstock. All you red country readers out there will remember that this was a totally botched, <laughs> this was a totally botched like negotiation that resulted in Casca's own men being killed and, they just killed all these people for no reason. They were kind of a meager force that they just overpowered, and yeah, it's it, it was just, it, it caused um, um, Tully to defect when he saw Casca do this, commit this, you know, not atrocity, but commit this act of violence that was kind of unnecessary and gratuitous on this on this town of Averstock. So we know that account because we got that perspective the POVs from Casca and Tully and and all that and now we're getting Swarbrick's actual journal entry because we know Swarbrick was writing this whole time Casca's story right. and uh, this is like a page from the book and it's so funny and Dylan you had made the observation last time that Swarbrick was kind of an extension of Abercrombie and like the act of Swarbrick killing Casca was kind of signaling the end of a time and to to have Abercrombie now voice Swarbrick also it almost like cements that comparison it does feel that way yeah and it's yeah it's very interesting to I've I've both read this one and heard the audiobook version and I I want to recommend the audiobook version for this just to hear Abercrombie (laughs) go all in on it it's it's interesting because the way I think of this story is Abercrombie giving himself full uncynical license to almost satirize the like epic writing nature of some of these other fantasy novels right, that right. we've perhaps read where it's <laughs> like the heroes are so unbelievably epic and paragons of moral virtue and... I think Abercrombie is just—he's—he seems like too, like snarky a, oh, a guy yeah. to write that with a straight face. Oh yeah. But he's given himself license to by making it a story <laughs> that a is all about a person who's overinflate, like forcing a writer <laughs> to overinflate his ego and his legend and all this stuff and. It's hilarious. Just it's some of so Abercrombie's prose in here. Uh, just <laughs> it he totally changes. This. And you know, I've seen Abercrombie's yeah. like do bookshelf tours and things like that. He has a lot of like nonfiction history books and journals mm. and things like that. So I remember way back when I first read the original First Law trilogy, I'm like, here's a man that read like Lord of the Rings or maybe read some of these journals yeah. and was like, these guys are full of crap. There's no way people would act like this in these situations, right? So he went and subverted all of it yeah. in the First Law trilogy. And now I feel like here we are all these years later and he's come full circle to where he's now satirizing them by embracing it so closely and just 100% committing. Nowhere in this short story does it ever imply that this is a satire or that it's the wrong account or anything. It has Casca sneak in notes at the end, which is funny. 
and may give you a clue. But if you had never read Red Country, you would have no or know who Nikomokoska is. Like, if you know who Nikomokoska is, you're like, no one's describing him as a hero and being serious. <laughs> but if you didn't right. know that, you just read it. It's a committed account of these heroic acts of this true hero. And the fact that he, he adopted that, like you could tell he had such an understanding of it. I don't think he'd be able to like subvert it and satirize it as much as he has throughout the first law universe if he didn't have such an intimate intimate understanding of it and now here it is like in full light he's just kind of showcasing how baloney sometimes history it can be when written by the victors you know so i I was just tickled silly by this whole thing and to hear abercrombie commit to it and give a performance as well just added added to the joy that i was feeling during this one (laughs) Yeah, well said. It's like, it pains me, dear readers, to tell you that Casca gave it his all, but these savages just wouldn't listen. You know, it's the stuff like that. It's like he had no choice. And then in a brave moment of glory, and then it shows Casca being like, we'll divide the gold evenly and give some to the families. It's like, you know, Casca didn't do any of that. So it's just so funny (laughs) to see this rosy colored tint on a stained part of history in the first light universe. (laughs) Well said. Yeah. I've, so I've grabbed a couple excerpts from this one and it, yeah. One thing is, you know, these, this throwing knife situation that's been playing out for Casca throughout, even the, in, before they're hanged, there's a moment where Casca (laughs) tries to throw a knife and He's like, oh, I used to be so he completely misses the target. And he's like, I used to be so amazing at this. And uh, he he has other moments like that. It's kind of an ongoing joke. He does get one like good moment with it where he actually uh, nails what he's trying to accomplish. But anyway, point being, it's his ongoing joke. And finally, when we get to this sharp end story... <laughs> This line never has such wondrous dexterity with a throwing knife been seen, nor such deadly facility with a blade. And <laughs> also some lines that goes on to say after talking about his uh, facility of the blade in says, at one stage, this reporter witnessed with his own two eyes the remarkable sight of two men killed with one thrust of Casca's flashing blade. It's got exclamation points. Run through. Nay. Impaled. Nay. <laughs> spitted, I say. Like two writhing cubes of meat upon a Gurkish skewer. It's like Abercrombie would never write fla- anything this flowery or prose you like that. Tell he but he's just so having much so much fun, fun with yeah. it. Exactly. And there's also another, <laughs> just a brief one, where at one point he says, it just says, my thanks, replied the great man, <laughs> which is like, <laughs> I just love that too from the, you know, and uh, Abercrombie, I don't think has a tendency to do this, but sometimes writers will like put in like said the rogue or something like that <laughs> if a character is roguish. And Abercrombie, yeah, not one that I've seen uh, to do He's too much of that. He's not one to explain to things them. like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but to have the moment where he does it and he just goes, the great man. <laughs> like, exactly. To explain so on the nose, like to tell rather than show, which goes against uh, uh, one of the like mainstays of writing advice is that show don't tell. And main stays against Abercrombie, who will refuse to explain anything to his audience, to go so far as to commit to an idea that, like, you kind of rely on the reader to understand and know. But he's not willing to even give hints to the reader sometimes for the sake of committing to his point of views to his characters, to his themes. So the fact that he can just, just go all out on this one was was so much fun. And again, this is written by the guy who ended up killing Nikomo Koska because of how horrible of a person he found Koska right. to be. And it's it's just fascinating. It's the sign and I will say one of the other things that gave me almost chills was like Abercrombie's account ends, but then it says in the book that there were scribbles and then italics, which it never says it's Nicomokoska, but in the audio version, yeah. it goes, Stephen Pacey comes back and does the Koska mm. voice, and you can actually yeah. hear him like turning pages 
as he's giving his Casca voice, he's like, what are you doing, Swarbrick? He's like, go back, add these things, add that, <laughs> like, adjust this account. Yeah. And it, it, it was like to see the two of them <laughs> act against each other was incredible. So highly recommend the audio version if you guys are listening to this and having just read the book. You gotta check out the audiobook, if only for this story. Right. Well said, Charles. Yeah, there's a line. <laughs> so he thinks it's too realistic, yeah. does Costco. Of course he does. <laughs> <laughs> he says, I'm all for realism in its place. Report the facts and so forth, but you can't expect to make the readers gasp with this manner of understatement. <laughs> <laughs> what an amazing character and you know after his death in red country it's great to get a little bit more Casca. yeah to see him come back yeah r.i.p Casca, because that's another thing hearing his voice come back from the dead too it just you know it, it, tears were swelling you know it was a wholesome mm. it was a wholesome were they charles <laughs> they were hashtag mission make charles cry yeah, did it yeah, succeed yeah. it was more of a like warm and fuzzy thing than a sad thing but here we go that was that story it's kind of like a fun little reprieve between the very long but good threes a crowd and then this very ambitious tough times all over this one you have to really pay attention <laughs> to what's going on at least for the audiobook listeners because the POV changes so fast, right? It, it follows the package holder, whoever that may be. So I think it changes point of views like what, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, like at least 13 times, maybe more. So this one moves quickly. Again, like you had mentioned, Dylan, it starts with the Kharkov, and, all, and then I'll read the description. All Kharkov wants is to take her package from here to there. But in the city of fogs and whispers, there are always a dozen other rogues with their own ideas. So they're in Sapani, and Shev has been hired by Karkov to steal back the package. And then, like, people continually get robbed and intercepted and, and all these other things. Uh, Curtis robs Karkov, and then you find out Curtis once fenced with Jazal, which is super interesting. And then Friendly's in the mix. We get a friendly POV, and he meets with Borfero, a.k.a. the Quarryman, who hands over the package. And then mm -hmm. the Northmen Deep and Shallow intervene, who work for yeah. the Bald Boss, <laughs> which is uh, Baez. <laughs> who and, might that be, Charles? <laughs> yeah, the Bald Boss, right? So the Bald Boss has a stake in getting this package. That's when you know the craziness is going to ensue. Who's robbed by Kaim? Kaim? K-A-K-I-M? Kaim. Who then passes... I love that point of view, by the way. Yeah, they're all good. He packages the package to Hove, the fiddler, who passes it to, ja to Jarvie, who passes it to Sifkis, who passes it to Old Green, who hands it to Fallow. Fallow runs with it to Javra, who forces the package into her possession, blah, blah, blah. It, <laughs> it's like this never-ending thing. And it's, it's like you were talking about rogues before. It's this roguish nature turned up to the nth degree. And everyone's yeah. robbing each other and handing things off against each other and fighting each other killing each other it's it's uh, it, it goes on and on and it's fun and it, again it makes you wonder like what the heck is this package this macguffin if you will and to hear the bald boss get 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 brought up makes you mm. think like oh this is the big leagues here <laughs> this is something that's got the attention of Baez. yeah and this is a it's a fun one because it's kind of a who's who of you never know who's going to pop up <laughs> people from all sorts of character, uh, all sorts of previous books and stories. And you get some point of views like Karkov, who at this point, you're probably kind of like trying to get a sense of her deal. So that's an interesting one to get. Mm -hmm. And then some new faces. And I, yeah, I, I found a, it's just interesting exposition of, or exhibition, something. Either way, uh, Joe Abercrombie does an amazing job of showing off his ability to establish point of view and character voice extremely quickly mm -hmm. in this story. And I think that's one of the places where this most shines is you have such a variety of character in this one. Right. Uh, where a lot of times it's like, 
in the heroes, they'll do that with the casualties chapter and stuff. And that's an awesome chapter. Right. Those characters, at least like almost all of them are usually soldiers and they're all kind of playing out in a war situation. And it's happening way faster too, way faster in casualties. And this one, it still happens quickly, but you get into the characters' musings, they have time to run and hide and think and fight and trade and and do all these other things. Yeah, because it's interesting because, like, you mentioned casualties, right? And that was when Abercrombie Mm -hmm. really was experimenting, like, doing crazy experiments with POV. He'd been doing some really interesting things with point of views as a tool and a way to develop character since the Blade itself. But in the Heroes with casualties, you could really tell he was pushing it to see how far he could go with, like, what if, like, I just threw away POVs like they were cheap and and like yeah. you know and and nothing whereas something like game of thrones is like every pov is like this huge epic deal with these big characters it's super important and it's like what if i just had like 20 povs in one chapter and they all died and it's it, it, and you yeah. can see him still kind of developing and honing his craft for pov and you could tell he he hasn't quite shaken it off yet it's he's still experimenting with it it's he's still curious about pov so it's fun to see him take what he learned from casualties and like all of the first law really and then flexing it again here in tough times all over well said charles yeah and i a few things i appreciate i told you like that kiem point of view and she's this little uh, thief she's a small girl who's just trying to make her life in this really messed up uh, city of sapani and there's a point where there's this line and this is just i mean we literally only get like was it less than two pages i think with this character and you're getting uh, into her point of view of things like a pleasure boat drifted past all chatter and laughter and clinking of glass people moving tall and lazy on board strangest ghosts seen through that mist and kiem wondered what they'd done to der- to deserve that life and what she'd done to deserve this but there never were no easy answers to that question and then she's just kind of on the move again <laughs> and it's like uh, such a like quick but well done uh, like getting into the head of a character that's uh, in this city which has people with living this life of luxury right mm-hmm. next to uh, her who's like uh, a little girl's had to grow up fast and mm-hmm. has the observations of these almost philosophical musings she's had to face and then we're just <laughs> on to the next one and <laughs> there's all sorts of um like amazing things that come up when Abercrombie plays with point of view and gets to have so many different characters so quickly and just get you to the meat of what that character is about. Well said. Yeah. He, the fact that he's able to get us invested in these characters for the short time that we have them to laugh with at them or you know, to, to feel their loss when they're gone. You know, it, it's, and also to just continue to establish a longer arc of this thing. And then the conflict between uh, the two wizards, right? Because one of my favorite things is towards the end when uh, Javre brings the package to Pombrine, who's talking about how they're working for Ishri, and he's like, "Go, go, go, get Ishri! Yeah. We have the thing. This is great!" Like, I just did it all, and then Chev uses the gossamer thread to snatch the package right after he already sent for Ishri. So Pombrine's like, "Well, I'm dead," <laughs> and then it, it, it implies this. This feud again between Baez, right, and and um, oh, what's his face, uh, Baez and the guy from Gr- Kalul. Kalul, thank you. Yeah, Baez and Kalul. Uh, so the fact that they're at odds in the middle of this without even being there, you know, it, it's they're overarching, looming over this story is uh, is fascinating, and and so yeah, I mean, anything else. That stands out for tough times all over before we get into the final story? Mm, no. Oh, oh, I wanted to say a thing about Karkov. Uh, there's a moment if you if you're remembering how Chev was like, oh, there's nothing beneath Karkov's mask. Then there's a moment where uh it's uh in Karkov's point of view toward the end, and we get this moment with Chev and Karkov. 
and they're kind of flirting with each other. And we get Karkov's prose saying, For the briefest moment, she almost tossed the package out of the window and sank down before the chair and took Chev's hand and shared tales she had never told from when she was a girl. For the briefest moment. <laughs> then she was Karkov again, and she stepped smartly away and let Chev's foot clomp down on the boards. <laughs> so we get to see this thing that it, we know Chev has just wanted so bad. Mm-hmm almost happen and then it's like ah no not not gonna happen and <laughs> it's just abercrombie having fun with uh point of view again yeah <laughs> yeah yeah it does exist like the thing chef gave up on uh that karkov has this depth does exist but she's not probably ever gonna see but it. it's only uh, a glimmer of an idea a suggestion if you will she, she's really kind of preoccupied with her own self-interest it would seem um, but she's trapped up in a thing with Baez and Kalul, so good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. um, that brings us to the final short story in the collection, and one of the best, if not the best. Again, because I was saying, like, you know, uh, yesterday near a village, whatever, that was in my... I, the only reason I didn't say it was definitively my favorite is because Made a Monster also exists. Yeah, This story is so good, and... I'll read the quick synopsis. Uh, After years of bloodshed, the idealistic chieftain Bethot is Mm. desperate to bring peace to the north. And there's only one obstacle left. His own lunatic champion. This is Logan Nine Fingers we're talking about. And wow. I mean, I, I get why he ended with this short story, even though chronologically it's the earliest one. And he starts with Glockta in the beginning. which was super interesting this idea of a beautiful bastard great story and then it ends with made a monster about logan and it's just so fascinating to see bethod's perspective from the first law trilogy was presented as the big bad as a warmonger all these things and at the end of the first law trilogy he's like you made me this person you didn't give me a choice like this is all your fault. And it's kind of the first glimpse Mm. we get into the cracks of Logan's character that we've loved so much. And now here we get it in its full (laughs) glory, this whole thing about how Bethod really did have plans to make compromises, build roads, as he says. You get to see Calder and Scale as children, and you get to see Bethod like, I'm doing this for the posterity of my family, and I actually am fighting averse. And you see him genuinely afraid to be within arm's reach of Logan. He, Logan is described as unpredictable, like, and like on the edge of a knife at all times. And Bethod is genuinely terrified of this man. It's so interesting to see how people react to him that know him at, at this point in history. Even the Dogman makes an appearance, which was so great too. Dogman just kind of sits outside the tent being like, you may yeah. not want to go in there, you know? And uh, it's just so, so good. And you remember Rattleneck and Rattleneck's son and all that comes yeah. into play here. So... Man, this was a fun one. Yeah, and it's uh, it does feel like we we almost get this story for the folks who still don't really all those Logan holdouts after Red Country. (laughs) It's like how many times does Abercrombie have to show you what Logan what Logan's deal is and. Logan has, I think, grown a lot as a character from this, this point in time, level yeah. of... Right, you're right. This is the lowest point where he's gone basically full Bloody Nine, where mm. it seems like that's more the default. Uh, right. Not not at Bloody Nine levels of when he just literally can't do anything but kill anyone. But uh, he's become fully invested in that way of being, mm. of being all about war and blood and killing and he has grown a lot to the point of red country and you do we do want to give him credit for that but the folks who don't see logan's faults for what they are and how bad he was and still in some ways is by the end of red country it's like hey do you need more reminder of (laughs) your who your beloved logan nine fingers uh can be here yes it's so true because 
people think because he's he's got this like gentle giant nature to him at the beginning of first law he's you know pretty understated he he only fights when he needs to and you see him as this kind of misunderstood like philosopher barbarian type and then the more we've sat with him to the point through red country you're like this guy's of baloney he keeps telling them these stories to himself about himself and he's he's wrong and then at the end when shy calls him a coward only this time the context has changed not that he's a coward and that he avoids conflict but he's a coward and that he's running away from his family and logan goes oh i've never denied it and walks off like leaves his family walks yeah. away from his family to settle scores and like this is not a guy who's learned his lesson this is not a good guy this is a guy who puts violence above all else even the hopes of like living with a loving family and he's even worse as black dow has said multiple times because he believes himself to be the hero and he's not Hmm. so in these stories you get to really see the full context of how unheroic he really was at the beginning and when when you read about the legend of the bloody nine, you, I can't help but think of these moments now where, like, um, Bethod is just ruminating on like, is he gonna just reach out and attack me now? It's like, yeah. I'm like the only one left who can still talk to this guy, and I don't even want to do it. Like that's how far it's gotten, and even Logan promises like, oh okay, yeah, we'll return him, right? Y'all are out next son, we'll send him back. You're right, you're right, chief. And then it almost plays out like a horror movie, like a horror story, when Bethod, like, he enters the room and he realizes what has happened and he sees Logan covered in blood and the room is covered in gore and it's um, a really horrific, gory scene. And it, and it just paints Logan in a light that he's not near nowhere close to being in the first law right at the beginning of the blade itself you know it's almost like a totally different character yep well said charles and i want to dive into this idea the of the title and what this story is supposed to be grappling with too Mm -hmm. which is made a monster and there's a quote that I'll read because we do know Logan kind of got transformed into this. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's looking at Lo- Bethod's looking at Logan and says, For a moment, he wanted to ask, What happened to you? But Bethod knew what had happened. He'd been there, hadn't he? He'd pointed the way, just like Nine Fingers said. He'd been a willing companion on the road. He'd swept up the rewards and smiled while he did it. He'd made a monster and he had to make things right, had to try at least, for everyone's sake for Logan's, for his own. So that's him speculating on on peace. So what this evokes, right, this is very Frankenstein, right? right? It's like, uh, (laughs) I mean, and I have, it's hard not to think that Abercrombie was thinking in some ways about Frankenstein during this. And uh, it does raise the question, like who is the real monster here between Bethod and Logan, which has been, we've been toying with that since, the original first law trilogy because Bethod's made out to be the monster when you're mostly in Logan's point of view. But here you get this almost sympathetic version of Bethod right. where it's like, he's actually after peace. But again, it's like, well, Bethod, like you say peace now <laughs> yeah. and you're talking about peace. But if we've learned anything about point of view from Abercrombie, we don't know that just because of the fact that Bethod keeps saying he wants peace, that that's what his behaviors would indicate in the right. long run, right? right? He is trying in this moment. But if it worked out, would Bethod actually be able to stick with it? Or is he just as much someone who lies to himself as Logan? Mm. And I, it makes me think of a, a quote that I happened upon somewhere, and I, I don't know who the quote is from, so I, I'm... I apologize to whoever this is. I, I, I'm sure they're not listening who originally said this, but it's uh, knowledge is knowing that Frankenstein is not the monster. Wisdom is knowing that Frankenstein is the monster. So 
if you know, I'm not uh, an expert in literature or anything like that. But to my knowledge, uh, the actual monster in the Frankenstein story is called Frankenstein's monster. It's not Dr. Frankenstein, who is the person that created the monster. So the idea is that it, if you have this, like the fact of the matter is that the monster is not Frankenstein. Like you're not supposed to say Frankenstein when you're referring to Frankenstein's monster, but wisdom and true understanding is knowing that the person who created the monster, Dr. Frankenstein is the true monster. And I've, yeah. So I've, I was thinking about that here and toying with the idea, not that we need to answer it. uh, Is Bethod the true monster for making Logan into what he is? Or is Logan the monster for doing the deeds? And it's uh, an interesting idea. We've been <laughs> or is for it both? While. Yeah, both. It's sure. true because yeah, because Bethod obviously he's like I just want peace now that he's raided half the north. He wants peace. It's like if you wanted peace, you maybe wouldn't have gone to war in the first place. So that's absolutely true because. This short story made me really invested in Bethod. I was like, this is such an interesting mm. guy. Like, this is such an interesting story. Yeah. And to see how Colder and Scale developed as people. And even Bethod had the wisdom to be like, look, you guys are only going to make it in this world if you stay together. And that's such an interesting lesson like that adds context to the end of the heroes when they do right. form sort of two halves of a whole ruler right where <laughs> one mm-hmm. plays like the actual kingly warlord warrior guy and the other one is pulling the strings in the background so it's interesting how Bethod could see that from so far away and then these moments where it's like i'm gonna build a road and scales like what the heck are you doing that for and colder's like well because like it connects yeah. everything you've done and then he Bethod's like both admiring and criticizing his children in the same breath. He's like, this one's right. stupid and this one is mean. <laughs> and too smart for too, his own snarky. Yeah. So it's yeah. like how like he's he had the foresight and talking to his wife and being like, what are we gonna do? We had to make peace, blah blah blah. blah. It, it's like such a it, it, it puts you through kind of like what um Calder went through. And it's it's uh very similarly when he was talking to his wife and had was like had a baby on the way and all that so it's interesting it's an interesting balance and it just had me fascinated in in bethod as a character i I wish we had more of him in those moments yeah me too it does make you wish you could get more bethod point of view but leaving you wanting more that is a good way to end a story and a good way to end a book if you ask me yep and that and quote, by the way, I googled it. Someone named Alexandra Melnick wrote some sort mm-hmm. of um, paper that is titled that. I don't know if they yeah. actually coined the phrase, but that is the first Google result. So well, that's what yeah. we'll say. Awesome. Thanks for looking that up, Charles. Yep. Yeah. Anything else to say so I... about Sharp Ends and Made a Monster before we wrap things up now that we're about an hour in? That scene where... Bethod come you just know oh, it's coming, scene, but yeah. it's still like I said, where it's he like a comes back and it's story. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanna double down on how <laughs> evocative that scene is where it takes a true talent to when you know something is coming if you've read the earlier stuff and you're still horrified by it. If so. anything, that only adds it's, to the like anxiety of the moment, mm, of the suspense true. of the moment. You're like we know what happens to Rattleneck's son. Like, what are we walking yeah. into right now? We know Logan's yeah. a main, like a a um, a um, unkiltered <laughs> maniac. What sure. what are we walking into right now? And that only added, like, I don't know. Abercrombie really nailed it with a lot of these short stories. He's, you could tell, he was just having he he was writing for the fun of it, for both the love of these characters and for the love of writing as an art form. And also just for fantasy as a genre as well. You just see him experimenting with all of it. And it's just super fun to see an artist having fun. <laughs> I just I enjoyed yeah. I enjoyed this book and I would highly recommend it. I, I certainly don't skip it as you're reading through Abercrombie's works. Definitely stop by and, and check it out. I think you would be remiss to, to not read it. 
Well, I'm glad you feel that way, Charles, because, um, yeah, um, I really wanted to read this and I'm glad you walked away feeling that. So, mm-hmm. uh, well, Charles, I, I'm going to make the same, uh, <laughs> I think the same seg that I made at the end of Sharp Ends part one, which is, uh, yeah, I think Made a Monster brings a, a sharp end to this episode. <laughs> one of the sharpest ends, ends of all, yes. indeed. <laughs> yeah, well can, said. Yeah. The Even sharpest better than the second time. That you can never have too many of. So mm, let's, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. Well said. And I also... Also, isn't he like kind of working out catchphrases in this one too? Like, wasn't he like saying some stuff that like was kind of half baked, Logan, in these moments? I feel like maybe he was, but I can't fully remember. But um, yeah, let's uh, let's wrap it up. Um, anything else before we play that sweet, sweet outro music? Let's get that sweet, sweet outro music pumping, Charles. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to yet another very exciting, very sharp episode of the Friends Talking Fantasy Podcast. If you like what you heard today, give us a follow, a like, drop a comment over on social media at the FTF Podcast with a number one at the end on Twitter and just the FTF Podcast on Instagram. And Dylan, if they like what they heard today and they want to support this show even further than following and engaging with us on social media and they just so happen to be listening on apple podcasts Mm. what can they do toss five stars to our podcast Uh, just find that friends talking fantasy page on the apple podcast app click the friends talking fantasy page scroll down past all those episodes until you start seeing stars once you're seeing stars the optimal number of stars to click in order to support the show would be five of them if you've got a little bit of extra time the writing review is extremely helpful for a podcast like ours but just listening to this Sharp Ends episode <laughs> is more than enough. We really appreciate you doing that. Thank you. Just listening, guys. You're so amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you for making it all the way to the Sharp End of Sharp Ends. And as always, guys, go forth and conquer, friends. <laughs>